Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, today I've got a really fascinating in-depth conversation uh, with a guest called Stephen Jenkinson. And Stephen was actually recommended to me by one of our listeners. So I'm really grateful that you guys are reaching out to me and letting me know who you'd like to see on the show, because in that way, you can guide my learning. And by guiding my learning, you're guiding all of our learning. It's a communal effort. So if you have people who inspire you, if you have people who you're learning from, please let me know and I'd love to reach out to them and try and get them on the show. Uh, But I'm going to tell you a little bit about Stephen before we jump in. So Stephen Jenkinson is a teacher, an author, a storyteller, spiritual activist and founder of Orphan Wisdom, which is a teaching house for skills of deep living and making human culture that are mandatory in endangered, endangering times. Uh, He makes books, tends to the farm, he mends broken handles and fences, succumbs to interviews like today's, uh, teaches and performs internationally. And uh, although we've got the whole COVID-19 thing going on at the moment, he did have a whole tour planned with his uh, show that he takes on the road called Nights of Grief and Mystery. And uh, and so that's going to be starting back up as soon as everything else starts up again as well. And you can find all of the links to his works, his books, and also his show in the show notes here below. So make sure you check that out. But I don't want to take up any more time because I loved this conversation and it was so much fun for me. And uh, and I hope that it's going to be of value to you guys as well. So I present to you none other than Stephen Jenkinson. Okay, so Stephen, I'm really glad to have you here today. Uh, you know, you came at high recommendation by a few of my listeners, and it wasn't until obviously I started really listening to oh, your stuff on <laughs> a few of them. Yeah, absolutely. But we like to delve into a lot of different subjects on here, so I'm sure that we'll get there. But I started listening to your stuff online, and and you know, wow, yeah, I'm I'm really impressed. Um, you know, there's only two people who I've ever heard use the phrase, words are my stock and trade. And that's uh-huh. yourself. And that's a good friend of mine from California, Sharon LaBelle, a beautiful author. And it just so happens that after listening to a few of your videos online, you have joined the ranks of the two you know, wisest people I've, I've ever listened to, Sharon included. Uh, and so... I was really thinking about what we could be talking about today. Obviously, I want to give you a chance to talk about um, Nights of Grief and Mystery, uh, this wonderful tour that you're on, um, which I know a couple of my listeners have been to and enjoyed. Uh, And I was thinking, yeah, I have a tattoo on my arm, Memento Mori. I don't need to explain to you what that means. But I was thinking, I'd love to talk to you about death, but you've talked about that a lot, obviously, in a lot of interviews. And I thought, I'm actually really interested in almost delving into a conversation around definitions, seeing as I feel as though you're kind of a master at the art of words, right? And 
there's so many words lately that I've been thinking, what does this mean? I just, I can't get my head around it. Yeah. So maybe I'll give you an opportunity just to introduce yourself. Um, you know, tell people and myself a little bit more about you. And then I guess my first question, I would love to delve into a conversation with you around the meaning and uh, purpose of the word logos would be where I would probably start. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is funny. It's uh, it brings me back to university days almost. (laughs) I hope so. Surely. Well, on the self-introduction front, I don't, I, I don't do that, um, largely because I think the notion that I'm well qualified to uh, be authoritative with regards to my own traipsing about is, it's not true, you know. I, I'm, I'm playing catch up on myself often and uh, trying to figure out what I meant and uh, am often surprised, sometimes uh, pleasantly by uh, what I'm able to, what I'm entrusted with, as well as what I can come up with and so on. But uh, suffice to say, I spent a, a fair amount of time in the death trade. And prior to that, I was a repentant and now more or less recovered mental health professional. And, and uh, then what, since then, where I was unceremoniously relieved of my uh, burden, uh, at the hospital. Uh, I've had the good fortune over, I guess it's about 12 years now, to have a, a school called the Orphan Wisdom School. And people come from all over the world, which is a completely dumbfounding to me and challenges my esteem for their judgment. But uh, I, I take it as an encouragement and I, I proceed. And until fairly recently, that was an ongoing and uninterrupted thing. And it was operating here and then also in the UK for the European people who wanted me to to come over there. And then somewhere about five years ago, um, I'm, uh, I should say that I'm shy and uh, I'm congenitally shy and I recognize that about myself, but oftentimes I find myself to be a lapsed shy person or a non-practicing shy person or a backsliding shy person. So, so I'm still, it's still there, but sometimes I don't cooperate with, with it very enthusiastically, which lands me on the stage with the Knights of Grief and Mystery show that you kindly mentioned. Mm. And as a matter of fact, though, um, you attributed to me being on the road right now on tour, but in fact, of course, uh, this whole business has uh, ruptured like virtually everyone I know. My, not only my capacity to make any kind of living at all, but more uh, drastically for me has uh, weaned me unceremoniously away from the great encounter which a performance circumstance is and uh, Gregor and I my partner in that project were on the the phone and we're working through the new record doing some editing and so on which we have coming out in a month or two and uh, as soon as I saw lay eyes on him and his wife who's the keyboardist in the band I immediately got thick-throated and sorrowful and uh, plaintive and maudlin and uh, all the other fine things that come with sorrow and missed them tremendously and missed what we were able to do together tremendously and uh, uh, deeply so I was supposed to come, as you may know, to Australia, New Zealand and Hawaii Mm -hmm. in I think it was November. And so we've put that off till March, hopefully or hope freely. We've done that, and um, 
all of this adds up to me having an insane amount of so-called leisure time, which has never been a friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> necessity and uh, pressure are much more welcome as prompts and prods for my, uh, I guess, creative and life. But I am mm. four-fifths of the way through a new book, probably. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my 100,000th word in the book this morning. Oh, wow. So it's a bit of a gateway that I passed through there. And I've, I'm now in the land of untranslatable. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm told if the book's too long, nobody's going to translate it into another language. And the only people who've defied that rationale so far are the Turks. Okay. They, yeah. they've, uh, they've translated Diewise. And um, the translator's amazing. I mean, she gets in touch with me to clarify colloquialisms that most English people can't clarify. Mm. And uh, it's going to be the most faithful translation of anything I've ever been involved with, probably mm. coming out to sometime in the middle of next year. So there it is. For somebody who can't introduce himself, I guess I did a passable, <laughs> passable job. And I'd love to jump in there because I know that I was going to talk about the Logos with you, but I'm a musician myself. And so I, I understand the, the and, and I know that you're ne not necessarily playing in the band. Is that right? I am too playing. Yeah. Oh, you are wonderful. Excellent. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so we both understand the pain from being away from our, you might call it our regular gig, you know, and, yeah. and, and, you know, I have a local gig here in my hometown and I'm really missing that, but I'd love to talk to you. Maybe we could start off by discussing the role of music, culture, poetry. Uh, something that I have noticed as I've been learning about the ancient philosophers is so many of them, also had their hand in a little bit of poetry or a little bit of music or a little bit of culture. What is the relationship there between philosophy, religion, music, poetry? What, what is that stock and trade to you? <laughs> That's such an immense question, but, um, <laughs> but I'll pretend it isn't and uh, see what I can do. Well, I would, let me use the word art as a, as a catch-all for the for to be able to begin by saying something at all. Um, I was uh, teaching in at a conference in New York City some years ago, and I was second on the bill. So the woman in front of me, we were both at a conference called The Art of Dying. That's what they call it. And of course, that's the user-friendly face that so many people are putting on dying now, the idea being that if it's an art form, apparently anybody can do it. It was amazing. It's like the most domesticating, bridled understanding of that word that's conceivable to me. So I got up there when it was my turn, and I didn't talk about dying at all. You can guess what I talked about. I talked about art. And uh, this is what I came up with on short notice. It seems to me that the, the function of art is not to reveal the angst or the angst-neutral capacities of the artists in question. In fact, I don't think art is self-expression in any way, shape, or form. And if it is, it's got to be another word for it, right? Mm. Like macrame or something. I mean, you got to get out of the way of the urgencies that prevail upon you, it seems to me. Particularly in a time like this, and by that I do not refer to the virus. I refer to the time that we're in. That mm. The virus does not, in fact, define at all. So, so how do you get out of the way? Well, you begin to understand that art is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not a personal identity. It's not a, a social construct. 
art is a doing thing and its principal um, function is prismatic, not illustrative, certainly not decorative, but something closer to prismatic, by which I mean that art takes the invisibility of the culture, the, the commonplacedness of the culture, if you will, the, all the habituations that make up our normal. And they refract them, onto, uh, excuse me, the art does, refracts these habituations until they become observable and uh, engageable, if you will. And that enables the rest of us to at least exercise some degree of choice about what we're going to succumb to, you know, what we're going to go numb with and so mm. on. And hopefully the idea is that you're actually going to decide not to do that. So the artist function is principally, he's a culture worker here. She is a culture worker. And the, the responsibility is enormous because the obligation is to reveal the culture to itself without the obligation of complementing the culture or reassuring the culture mm. or reinstating the culture even. Uh, this is really dangerous enterprise in a time when the culture is beyond the likelihood of self-correction, which mm. I would take the dominant culture, at least of North America, to be in a position of no longer interested in self-correction, seeking mm. out uh, demolition instead, seeking out a kind of culture form of dementia uh, as a way of being defeated so that we don't have to submit to the dilemmas that we put into motion over the last you know, 150 or 200 years. So that's a quite a, a, a considerable indictment. And, mm. um, and it's observable most days to me. And I must tell you, uh, and maybe this is an quote artistic thing to observe, I don't know. But I've noticed in the last <clears throat> probably month or so that I'm haunted by a degree of despair which is so impersonal that it's that it's doubles down on the haunt. In other words, my the despair isn't mine, but I'm despairing that this virus gave us the opportunity to practice annihilation without having to endure the physical carnage of annihilation. Obviously, some people are dying from it. Obviously, a, a, quite a number of people are dying from it, but nothing close to what anybody in a position of authority was anticipating even a month and a half ago. And alas, it seems to me that we got close, but we didn't get close enough. And the likelihood of us picking up where we left off and um, imagining that the coast is clear or clear enough and reconstituting the way of life that brought us to where we have found ourselves in the last couple of three months is overwhelmingly likely to me, see. Mm. So then what might be the artist's responsibility in that circumstance? Uh, and I think sorrow is a responsibility. You know, as if it's not personalized and doesn't turn into my hard times, but you got to testify, right? You got to be a faithful witness to the ramshackling uh, circumstance that you're born to. And 
I, I suppose that's what I've held myself to do. Certainly the Knights of Grief and Mystery show was a kind of emphatic way. Uh, well, it gave me, it gave me a, a, a forum in which I didn't have to invent every night the reason because the title of the event, we never gave the band a title, a name, but we named the event and we called it that as fair warning, Nights of Grief and Mystery. And it's, and it's become quixotic. It's a beautiful rendering of, a, of an adjective derived from a, a character's name, of course. And by which I mean, there's no question that there are monsters. Hmm. And when we set out every night and on every tour, we're going there. Not to fight them, but in by engaging them, making them more three-dimensional and more um, available to the people who come with us. Yeah. Hmm. So that brings us closer to the direction of uh, Logos, if that's what you wanted to... Uh, I would love to. I would love to pick up there and, and discuss the logos because I think that there's there's a lot of different interpretations when you start listening to what it means. I know that you've obviously studied a lot of language. You've studied a lot of, uh, you know, Greek philosophy as well. I'm sure. Um, what is the logos? What yeah? What what is its purpose? Well, be very careful with the article. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. So rather than say the logos. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you'd be hard pressed by anybody in a position of familiarity with these things to say, oh, which one do you have in mind? And of mm. course, the dictionary translation is word. It's a very banal and skimpy and ungiving definition. Mm. It doesn't mean word until you begin to reinvest the, the notion of language and the notion of articulation and speaking with a kind of conjuring power that it's virtually always been. I mean, many, many cultures, as you know, um, understand the world to have been literally sung or chanted into being, spoken into being. Uh, the Greeks have a, had a phrase which was borrowed into the New Testament, John 1, 1, I believe, and it begins, Ein arche chai hologos. There's the word. And it's mistranslated. I'm quite sure you know the reference. It says, in the beginning was the word. That's how it's Mm. translated typically in the various dictionaries that are available and and the Bibles as well. But it doesn't mean that. It never meant that. First of all, it's not clear that arche means beginning. I'm I'm absolutely persuaded does not mean beginning. Um, We we derive it from, from it, the word archaic, but that doesn't mean beginning. It means, of course, aged and enduring. It means uh, present and uh, long-lasting. It doesn't mean necessarily first. But the reason that the word appears in our word architecture, archetype, um, arcane, uh, help me out here. You you can think of five that I can't think. Of. <laughs> oh, I archaeology. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, I'll spare you. Yeah, uh, the reason it appears there is because it's not saying first. It mm. means understanding. Mm. Literally, the position of standing under. So the, the reason mm. that RK appears the way it does is because it's upholding everything that is above it. That's what I mean by under 
stand, you see? Mm. So it's in, in a sense, it's, it's spatial and temporal, the function of understanding. That's what ancestors, I mean, functioning, engaged, healthy, uh, employed ancestors do that very thing. And they employ logos to do it because they entrust our language to us, you see? And when you hear today, as I do, the willingness of uh, shoot from the hip academics to basically junkyard the language and scavenge from it as they see fit and decide what these things mean without the obligation to be faithful to where the language comes from. You see, it's not, it's not a hardware store, a language. Right, where you come and pick and choose as it suits you. You know nothing of how anything came to be there, but if you have enough money, you can walk out with your arms swung, which is what apparently education is supposed to be now. Hmm. But of course, even education is telling you something. It's for Latin. The verb is to lead out, educo, to lead out. So the alternative to educate, to be educated, is to be. Um, convicted i suppose to be to be ensnared in conviction in and out being the operative ideas <clears throat> excuse me so logos is first and foremost world conjuring um, alternative to operating on faith you may not have expected I was going to say that, and I, I'm surprised myself, but I realized, well, that might be true. By which I mean, Logos is first and foremost an agent of, our, of incarnation, hmm. right? The word incarnation means enfleshment, literally. It's a faith is an avoidance strategy for incarnation, of course. Faith uh, operates on the notion of personal belief. And a personal belief apparently requires next to nothing except a firm capacity for conviction. But the capacity to love the world by lavishing your language upon it, it requires no belief whatsoever. Hmm. It does require a, a recognition, though, that you might owe something for your presence on the scene and for all of the uptake that you engage in, particularly the North American form of life that is obviously so hard on the world. And when I was talking earlier about art, I was suggesting that the obligation to bear faithful witness and to, to see to it that the, that the nature of the times become apparent is m perhaps most available in the spoken word. Mm. Although that's quickly going into some kind of atrophy now with this pseudo democratization through YouTube and which should be called MeTube, of course, and, <laughs> and the various other forms of, um, oh man, I, maybe I shouldn't get started on that. <laughs> so no, long story but that's short, so going. I'm sorry, I'll just finish that little piece. Yes, there. please. Long, long story short, poetry is not even language elevated to some uh, extraordinary and uncommon height. I think the best poetry is recognizable in, a, in the handle of a shovel, hmm. in, 
in the wind coming through the window and making little hum in the screen one more time. And all the other ordinarinesses that pass between those two kinds of observations. That's poetics to my mind. Mm. Nothing elevated, if by elevated you mean leaving the daily grind behind. Ultimately mm. then, the best poets are workers, right? And they understand that perhaps their principal work is to bless. And that's what raising sorrow and praise to speech probably achieves. It's, it's ultimately culture work that the rest of us who are distracted or busy trying to grow the food rely upon, right? And when they do it, when the poets do their work, the amazing consequence is that the capacity to see things differently, it doesn't last long, but it's instantaneously available. Hmm. It's a, the power of revelation can't be overstated when you're talking about poetics, at least to my mind. And mm. we have enormous gratitude, and we should have, for the people who are willing to set aside anything like a predictable or secure life for the sake of serving those particular muses. That's beautiful. I, I love that. And this idea of lavishing your words upon the world uh, I don't think I've ever heard a better kind of definition of what you might say poetry or, you know, my, my dad's a poet as well. And he, he, he writes a poem about everybody in the family. It's always beautiful to sit there. And I, I just, I, I listen in wonder at his ability to choose the right words for the right moment in the right sentence. Mm. Uh, and I love that. So prophecy revelation. I, I'm interested. I know you've talked about this before. Uh, I think, I think that we're living in a strange time where you could say that many of the problems which we face come down to, and you might disagree, come down to our unrelenting ability to completely believe ourselves and to have faith in things that we may not be able to prove and to force that upon the world. And when a lot of people hear prophecy, prophet, revelation, they will immediately attach that to the Bible. They'll immediately attach that further to prosperity gospel or some sort of modern religion, and they throw it out the window. I th there's a link between poetry, music, as you've said, of some sort of revelation about the society. Further on that, what, what is prophecy and revelation to you? How do you see it? And how do you, how do you connect with it? I think first and foremost, these are topographical enterprises. That means that, I mean, my favorite verb to describe the function of prophecy is the verb to braille, which of course is typically not a verb. It's usually used as a, as a noun. But I think of it as a, as a kind of feeling your way and being informed tactilely by the substantive realities uh, that will not succumb to your beliefs. One of the most beautiful things about the wild, I, I could rotate the camera here and show you it. I'm, I'm on the banks of the river that's on the front of the Die Wise book. And uh, with the exception of the occasional tourist who in it, unwittingly or otherwise violates the natural order up and down the river here. <laughs> By and large, 
you could say the wild is just on the other side there and is content to stay there and comes no further if I'm willing to live the same kind of deal. In other words, one of the things you find with the wild, at least in my corner of the world, is it takes care of us most emphatically by retreating from us. And of course, if, you're, if your foundation story or your creation story tells you uh, that that distance between yourself and the sacred is a punishment for some kind of primordial transgression, you're going to tell what I just said much differently. But I'm saying it in a redemptive or prophetic way. I'm saying that the, the world takes care of us most emphatically by taking one step back when we take one step forward. Hmm. Meaning that a direct encounter with the wild is often our undoing. And the wild intuitively, oh, I can't speak authoritatively about the architecture, but I'm just suggesting that the wild seems to understand this in some fashion and is not punishing us by turning away, but is giving us a chance to live another day to come to our senses and to stop advancing. And it's no surprise to me at all. Here's another act of prophecy. It's no surprise to me at all that the likely, quote, origin of this pandemic is the unnatural, and I mean that word explicitly, juxtaposition of the domesticated or the feral with the wild in a marketplace. It's no accident. It's absolutely in keeping with our transgressive acquisitive instincts that we would imagine that there's no particular consequence to bringing those two too close together. But the leap didn't go the other way. We didn't infect the wild with anything. The leap is in our direction, see, as a consequence of not being able to pull back and recognize that the limits that we've been entrusted with are exactly that for our own sake, you see. So what do you say, mister? I'm saying that prophecy has nothing to do with the future. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it's not fortune telling. It's not future reading. It's not tea leaves. It's none of that. It's an acute willingness to be utterly taken up with the disciplined inquiry about the present circumstances. But you need all those qualities, you know, consistent, disciplined inquiry not imposition of belief system hmm. inquiry not empty why questions either i mean why is the best way to get the thing you're wondering about to leave the room see so wonder you could imagine is one of those um it's a logarithm of a sort in the sense that we were talking about logos earlier that the willingness to wonder and to take upon yourself a kind of structured discipline in which to do so turns you into somebody who's willing to inquire, not something who's demanding that their ambivalence be resolved. See, all of these to my mind are qualities of the prophetic voice. And I probably shouldn't tell a story, but it just seems in keeping. Please. So I'm, I'm teaching in, um, somewhere in Arizona, I think it was a bookstore, so you couldn't say I was teaching, whatever the hell that was. <laughs> and it was clear that I shouldn't have been there, but that's true many times. And 
it's interesting, you, you have to make up your mind that the shouldn'ts for the moment don't apply and will reconstitute themselves just on the other end of when you finished. But anyway, I, you know, it was a very small crowd and it was a new age bookstore and it was, anyway, I did my best. And, but there's a guy in the front row and he was just studying the hell out of me. It was about five feet away and he made no secret of investigating me as if I were a particularly odious um, household disturbance, you know, in his days. I had no idea what he was going to say in the book signing lineup afterwards, but he lined up all right. And because it's America, you see, anything can happen. And it's more so now than it was mm -hmm. even then, right? So now it's his turn and he comes in and he looks at me for a minute. And I looked at him, he says, um, I was watching you very carefully. I said, well, no kidding. And he said, I, I finally figured you out. I said, oh, great. You're going to tell me or you just want me to know that? He said, no, I'll tell you. I said, go ahead. And he said, uh, you're a prophet. That's the word he used. And I, and I shushed him. I said, no, don't, don't say that kind of stuff out loud. Uh, it's never done anyone any good to be accused of the prophetic function. Even though it's deemed to be a reward or a recognition for a job well done, it is at the end of it, in a disbelieving and desecrated age, it's an accusation. Mm. That's what prophecy becomes an accusation, you see. So it's proper to protect yourself against the accusation by proceeding otherwise temporarily and throwing people off the scent. But the willingness to see things and to be seized by ordinariness. That's the job. Mm. That's beautiful and, and very important for times like now, uh, especially. And, and I, I appreciate you mentioning that importance to not necessarily name a prophet, but to just, you might even say, sit with what they're saying and maybe engage in your own wonder and see if it stands the test. And I'd love to transition over into sort of a discussion on mythology, the role of mythology, because it seems almost as if what we see today is kind of a, a, a strange, I don't want to say battle, but I'm going to use that word, between those who say that mythology is 100% true in every sense of the word, and those who say there's nothing to be gained from mythology. And it seems that our ability those to... Are both accurate. Those are both <laughs> there's a spot in the... Exactly. And that's what's so tough, right? That's what's so tough about it because there, there exists a spot in the middle, doesn't there? Almost like you're saying an interpretation of the story which can tell us about our human nature, which if you listen to it, can actually tell us almost... <laughs> you know, to the T, what, what we see happening in our society today. What do you see as the role of mythology uh, as it relates maybe to religion as well? And, and how, what do you think the relationship has grown to today? And what can we gain from, say, uh, the mythological stories of the past? Well, I think mythology is storytelling by another name. Hmm. And I think religion is the collapse of storytelling hmm. in a phrase. It's a lot of other things too, 
the root word of religion is the same root as uh, the ligament in your knee. Uh, it, to, it, uh, or the verb to align is there as well. Uh, religion means to bring into alignment two independent or a number of independent things to allow some kind of event to take place that wouldn't have take place, taken place had they remained disparate and distinct. Mm. But when you say religion instead of religion, there's no word religion, of course, it means to have to do it again. So mm. the assumption that's buried in the word religion, in its etymology, is there's been some disturbance in the pliable alignment of life such that a degree of um, restitution has to be undertaken by humans to restore it or to imagine that they're restoring it. See? So that's amazing, no? That the, that the sort of backdoor assumption of religion is some kind of primordial rupture. Hmm. Wow. So you don't need religion if you, if you ain't got broken. So that's, I don't know what kind of news that is, but there it is. Um, <laughs> and can and, I just clarify yeah. something? So you said that mythology is the, the, the spoken story, the story told. Is there an importance there in defining it as the spoken word, the, sto the carrying on of a story throughout culture? And is that the reason why we see people so dogmatic in their belief because they haven't continued to tell the story and let it evolve for our modern time? Well, we're not a storytelling age. Hmm. Right? It, it hasn't stopped us from yammering. <laughs> but you couldn't say that nine-tenths of everything that you're exposed to on this machine our stories. Now, of course, you, it's in the time we have allotted to us. We we can't do justice to what do you mean by story and da, 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 and all of that. Mm. Not to get too detailed, maybe, but I would just observe this: that the act of speaking is a different act than the act of writing. Mm. I don't diminish writing. I'm I'm a, a kind of happy beneficiary of it, but I recognize that. Uh, Ancestrally, it had enormous consequence. The advent of writing had enormous consequence. Most of, of the disembodying kind. Hmm. That's, the, that's the, the simple fact of it, yeah? So, um, mythology, to my mind, is the willingness... Okay, they imagine, or we tell the story that when we came down out of the trees, and we were knuckle dragging a little bit. One of the th fundamental things we brought with us was the instinct and the need, and I would say the mania for pattern recognition hmm. as a big deal, as a basic survival chops right there. In other words, you got to be able to see in the bush something that's not the bush. And the only way to do that is to have a really articulate understanding of what constitutes the bush. Yeah. And if something's moving in there, well, you get the point. So, hmm. so we're no longer in survival mode, but our mania for pattern recognition remains firm. And we will impose it 
even where it isn't. So you could say that a culture that is atrophied in its myth-telling and myth-hearing capacity is probably given over to that pattern recognition mania and is imposing a degree of belief structure, right? In order to make the oncomingness of life predictable, comprehensible, endurable, and ultimately to be able to monetize it, I suppose. Mm. And the beautiful thing about speaking these things, you know, they, they, they say about radio, I love radio myself, not wild about video. That's why we had the brief conversation about whether I was going to come on visually, right? Yeah. And people routinely say, well, people really want to have a face to us. I said, I know that's what they want, but that's not the same thing as that's what should happen. Mm. Because they say, you know, the words can lie, but the voice can't. And one of the reasons that performers do their voice exercises in the dressing rooms and so on beforehand is an acknowledgement of that very fact, that you cannot reach those emotional or psychic places if your voice doesn't go there with you. Hmm. You can say the words, but people can hear them and can't hear the depth in them identify right away that you've become a megaphone, which means large-voiced, right? For something that you can't inhabit. So the beautiful thing about mythology is it gives you an opportunity to, I mean, with enough discipline and tutelage to inhabit the story that you're entrusted with long enough to learn it well, long enough then to, when somebody, you know, one-third your age inquires in your dotage whether or not when you were their age did you know what was happening you know the answer is neither yes nor no the answer is is there a story right now that you lived or that you were lucky enough to see that gives this kid who's three-quarters argument and one-quarter despair a reason for listening to you beyond yes or no that's what mythology probably has to be or become soon enough, you know, as you grow older in your time. Because obviously it doesn't look good. Mm. And it's interesting that we talk about kind of the, you know, spoken word uh, storytelling versus the, you know, what is a new era of writing, academia, science. And what we see now is very interesting is a massive uptake in listening to podcasts, listening to YouTube. There's a audio is massive at the moment. Um, almost as if there is sort of like a, a yearning for the time when you could just listen to somebody talking to you. Um, but this, this idea that you talk about it, and we might actually jump back into music for a second, uh, allowing the muse, whatever it is to speak through you, to, to inhabit the muse or to inhabit you. I've noticed when I'm a jazz musician, so a lot of it is improvisation. And I've noticed that the moments that are most, that the most powerful, the most beautiful moments are those when I'm able to completely let go of my attachment to needing to control the music and instead allow it to almost overtake me. Um, and there's, there's, there's no judgment. There's, there's nothing other than I'm just going to go for it. And 
it seems that there's a similarity there between say how you would create the most beautiful art by allowing it to um, inhabit you and say the way that the Taoists would have talked about, you know, when you finally shut up, that's when whatever it is that makes all this works, that's when it actually speaks to you. Um, and I've been really racking my brain about how to uh, translate this into Stoicism because Seneca said that we only have two things. We have universal nature and we have our individual virtue. And I've been trying to figure out how the Stoics felt, how they tapped into that universal nature or allowed it to speak. Um, and, and I know that we're going down, a, it's kind of a dangerous road because I try not to allow my ego to jump into this and make me believe that I can always just have this, whatever it is that they, I don't even understand it. How do you see that connection there? Universal nature, um, you know, that moment in music when you just let go and finally you achieve something. Um, and, and maybe we could talk about this in terms of the daemon as well, but how do you see that? What, what is that universal nature? Well, it's not my phrase. And mm. to be honest, I'm under persuaded that there is such a thing. Mm. Now that's doesn't help your question very much, obviously. Well, I want your but, answer. So, yeah. <laughs> Yes, um, I can't distinguish universal nature from globalization. Hmm. I, can't, I can't do it. I try. I try to allow the possibility uh, that there's something of merit that we can, quote, all say yes to, or the saying yes is the thing. I, and I'm just, I'm deeply, not that it's a spectacular observation to make, but I'm deeply underpersuaded of the existence or the necessity of the thing. And here's why. I look around and I do look around. I mean, we farm here, right? I have 65 acres or so. And um, most of that is taken up with we, what we jokingly call watching the farm channel, which is to say you observe, mm. you, you be quiet, you don't rush it and you observe. And you have to be able to do that over a long period of time to see movement and to see tendency and to see pattern, as I was saying earlier. So I will officially bestow upon myself some vague capacity to do that very thing. And that's where this observation is coming from. You could say, well, we all die. That's a great, well, that's not even, that's not true by any, you know, achieved understanding of dying. Because die is an active verb in the English language, right? Grammatically speaking, it's an active verb. You can't die passively. Syntactically, you can't say it. See? So the English language is mysteriously quite achieved on this matter. It's saying dying is what you do. It's not what happens to you. And if mm. that's true, and it certainly seems to be, then it raises the distinct possibility that you will not die because it is a thing to be done. You see, so it's not inevitable. So no, we don't all share either the capacity, the inclination, the willingness, never mind whatever repertoire is necessary to be learned and to be honed to have access to when the time comes mm. or to recognize what the time is and so on. 
So, I mean, that's supposed to be one of the great reducers or the great common denominators, and it's not there. Yeah. So instead of that, I would suggest to you this. It would appear that what every made thing has in common is its capacity for a particular articulate note called its appearance, its growth habits, its, uh, its maturational stages, etc. Those are all its fingerprints, if you will. And the world seems to be constituted of the overlapping capacity of all these life forms to most resemble themselves and for there to be virtually no confusion between the white pine that's outside my door and the stone that it's at at its feet in its root and the deer that walked by this morning. None of those appear to be envious of the repertoire of the other. Mm. See, you get to human beings, which eventually you have to get to human beings. I mean, if you're mm. one of us, eventually you're going to get there. You're going to say, right then, how do we fit in? And the answer is, sadly, we don't really fit in, which is our part to play. Mm. Apparently, we seem to be the only life form whose fingerprints include confusion about what it means to be human. And if you doubt that for a second, inquire as to why we have the word human in English, and then we have a different word by putting an E on the end. Are these synonyms? If you don't think about it much, you, you just think they are. It's two ways of saying us. But of course, after a moment, you realize, no, that's not true at all. Human, well, that's something that's, let's call it, chromosomally inevitable if you're made like this. Humane, humane is a range of behaviors that allow the distinct possibility that our humanness is in abeyance. That's the most genial way I can say it. So we've crafted another word that says, sometimes humans aren't, hmm. right? Don't know how to be, lost track of it, didn't think it was important, didn't learn how, didn't inquire after it, didn't pursue it, didn't cultivate it over the course of a lifetime, didn't value what was handed on from times past, imagined themselves to be literally uh, automatons. And the word literally explicitly means to be self-mothered, hmm. which of course is some kind of crime against nature, to be self-mothered. So, so, I mean, there's no way of summing up what I just said, but I, I could have you know, elongate it by one degree and suggest something like this. It's the particulars that are proof of the, quote, mind of God, it seems to me. And our instinct for the commonness is something like our instinct to take over from the mind of the maker, mm. to assume, you know, in this pattern recognition mania, to assume the role of great arbiter and adjudicator by virtue of being able to make these sweeping, generalizing, all-inclusive, temporarily relieving observations about anything at all. Excuse me, we don't need to be the same. 
no matter what kind of need arises in us, it seems to me what we need is the capacity to recognize that each one of the whorls and the fingerprints of the maker <clears throat> are best incarnated by the God-given variances among us. And I'm not just talking about humans racially and you know, gender-wise and all that. I'm talking about everything that draws breath, everything that doesn't need to, everything that's taken up room in the place, right? And necessity is most emphatically available to us in the particulars. And that's what mm. I take. It, look, even if it's not true, as Pascal said, even if it's not true, it should be true. <laughs> and, and I'll go I, with the sure. Yeah. You know, I, I really don't think that we're that far off from each other in terms of, uh, and, you know, I've been trying to understand that universal nature, but the Stoics really talked about it in two ways. And, and, and it's not a clinging to universal nature. It's an acceptance and, and a, almost a, you listen to what say it's an understanding of what humanity is as a whole, but also an understanding of your own individual nature. Uh, it's, it's a submission to whatever you're here for. And I, I really appreciate what you said because, you know, those of uh, the listeners who are listening now will know that multiple times on the podcast, I have mentioned that, from a few months ago when I really started questioning, what does it mean to be a human being? I was thinking we are the only things on this planet that are perplexed about what we are or why we're here. <laughs> you know, you look at the lion, it doesn't wake up in the morning and think, well, what am I? Um, it's, it's simply as far as we can tell as far as we, that's what, yeah, as far as we can tell. And it seems that when the Stoics talked about, living in agreement with nature it was almost a call to go back home away from this place where we think that we know everything like you said self-mothering do you think that that's an unfair distinction you know much more about stoicism than i ever will so um i guess I'm not troubled by these things at all. Hmm. And <laughs> it sounds like a kind of, that's a strange response, not to be troubled by something. But if I'm not troubled by it, and neither am I soothed or pleased by it, then I tend not to be concerned over it, you know? And, hmm. and don't spend, spill a lot of emotional or cognitive ink on it either. And you will find, oh, it's going to sound, give you some geezer observation here now. You may find, I should say, that as time rolls on and you don't get left out, but you get a certain kind of allotment that others didn't get, that you find you have a combination of the obligation to apportion your psychic, psychic energy a little more deliberately than you may once have done. And that you're not so promiscuous with your concern. You see, you don't, you don't spill it madly in all directions and let three quarters of it take care of itself and you'll never see it again, which is a standard young person's way of, you know, fretting over the world and so on. Mm. And I don't say that out of any diminishment. I mean, it's, it's in keeping with the time that you're in. But 
But oh, I'm aware get... of my capacity to be exactly like that. Don't you worry. <laughs> okay. But if you, if you can hear the end of your days, not far from your door, it can fill you with dread. Of course it can. It can fill you with a kind of immobilizing um, paralytic sorrow. Of course it can. But if you're lucky, if you work very hard and if you practice, you may find that it puts a fine point on your, on the precision of your inquiry. You know, and you sound intolerant, right? Of course you do. Because you're not going to tolerate three quarters of the shit that people are willing to walk through in order to, quote, figure something out. You want to say, I'll tell you what, when you've done all the slogging, be back in touch because I ain't doing that again, kind of thing, you know. And uh, I know the, cos the, 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 the cosmetics aren't that great, but, but really and truly, uh, it's proper to give yourself more, I would say, uh, devotedly to what you feel you're most responsible to. And, you know, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say, I don't know. I'm certainly happy to say, as I'm asked repeatedly, what do we do about this and so? I'm not the answer guy. I have no obligation to have a one size fits all take on anything. You know, I have no obligation to be certain, hmm. frankly. But ambivalence has turned out to be one of my closest companions in, in this life of inquiry that I've been entrusted with. And I'll just give you the etymology of it. It doesn't mean confused. Mm. It doesn't mean to be drawn and quartered. The capacity to be ambivalent means to nurse along contending possibilities or views without, without collapsing into an often premature choice of one over all the others. That's all it mm. means. So, so the, the proper antonym to, to uh, ambivalent is confused. See, not, that's what, that's, because confused means have no, no flex. Mm. That's why the word fused is in there, right? It means bound with, if you will, inflexibly bound with. Ambivalent, on the other hand, is, you know, the wind is not your adversary. And the changing times are not your undoing. See, and at this point, most people are listening saying, what the hell is he talking about? What, what, what question is he responding to? And the answer is, well, maybe the one you haven't asked yet, which mm. goes something like, as you get older, does it change? Does it matter? Are there enduring constants, come what may, that your aged eyes fall upon and, and it's the same thing again as it was when you were 17? And the answer is no. If you're lucky, no. Because your life should be crediting the passing of time. See? I mean, our great problem with old people in our midst, and it's no irony, is it? That's the old people that are dying of this thing hmm. in, their, uh, in their cubicles, right? What, I mean, somebody said to me in an interview, why is COVID-19 um, locating itself in old folks' homes? I said, because there's old folks' homes. See, just understand why. That's why. 
and if yeah. old people were 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 generously distributed across the you know the population there would be no such concentration obviously they'd still be vulnerable but not in the way that that place makes them so i've lost i've lost track of what i was saying no i i, I think no i think that what you said is is really beautiful and it I'm likening it to something that Sharon LaBelle told me about this idea written by Edward de Bono, the idea of Poe, uh, not, not saying yes, not saying no, not being any way other than just sitting and playing with the ideas that come to you, playing, wrestling with whatever these thoughts and muses you might say. And I think that we've, well, if we haven't lost it, we're definitely on our way to losing that ability to simply wonder and to simply sit with the thoughts in your own head, right? And to, to be able to interpret them without judgment, right? Oh, no, that's a pretty, I wouldn't say, hold that up as a standard. I would just say to you, uh, judgment is simply a beginner's error. That's all. Hmm. I mean, you have to do that as an entry level gesture it it's an exercise in in some kind of mastery that you don't actually enjoy mm. and so you exercise your right to disagree or even or even worse to disbelieve and in actual fact the the object in question is deeply unimpressed with this exercise of yours mm. so now that you're entirely done this um pantomime of mastery Let's then return to the thing that you're so willing to dismiss or pass some kind of juridical uh, uh, weather upon. Hmm. And, and so, you know, not to be a purist. I mean, that's Puritanism, which came from you know, basically from England, uh, meant nobody no good. And the amazing thing is it hasn't run its course yet. And it bedevils the American uh, political system and its problems with pornography, hmm. uh, among, among a host of other things. So, so in inquiry, being puritanical about what's okay, what's not okay, it's, uh, like I said, rather than, rather than rewarding the puritanism in some places and then forbidding it in other places, simply look upon it as a kind of, when you've, when you haven't exercised for a while and you're stiff, then the first act of trying to be otherwise is be, you're emphatically articulating your stiffness. Well, that's what prejudices are. Hmm. They're, they're unexamined, unexercised atrophies, right? Hmm. Okay. So, and unfortunately in your time now, if this is your era, um, you know, people your age are in a world of self-congratulation over-exercising mm -hmm. their right to opt out and to cast slander and to, to you know, pass judgment and all the rest. And uh, oh well. <laughs> I love it. Oh well. That's, that's beautiful. Oh well. I wouldn't you, advise you know, it. But... Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. We do live in such strange times, and 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 it's almost too easy to read the tea leaves. Um, I, I, I think I have. If you have time, I'd just like to ask one more question, right. uh, which I, I wanted to give you the opportunity. You obviously, um, you, you pay attention to a lot. 
that's kind of uh you know hopefully what we could all do is maybe see the whole picture as opposed to just our own little what you might say prejudiced view of the picture what do you think is the most important message you could share with people at this time in in uh well at this time uh answer number one i did already mm -hmm. i took however long we've been talking to do it right mm. so summing up is is either acknowledging that you didn't get it right for an hour but you mm -hmm. can get it right in 20 seconds yeah or it's an acknowledgement that it's it's an ongoing thing mm. trying to come to a, a workable temporary something that allows you to put one foot in front of the other that's one Hmm. Two, you use the, in the introduction to the last question, you use the idea of the big picture. I know it has philosophical merit, or it would appear to, and I know it has a lot of draw. But here's a story for you that could be a myth, but it really happened. So, uh, so a friend of mine who's a, a native guy in uh, Arizona, he uh, is in the jewelry making business. So somebody said to him, you got to have a video or you're never going to make it. <laughs> so he gets somebody to make a video for him. And they employ one of those godless, satanic drones, okay, to, to shoot him walking in the desert, looking for precious stones to use in his jewelry. And they make the, the thing and he showed it to me. And I said, yeah, it was perfectly fine, you know, for a visual age. Then he showed it to his mother and she watched it for about a minute and a half and turned away from the computer screen and she just shook her head. And he was kind of dumbfounded. He said, what? He said, I think this is going to be good for business. Maybe she said, but I'm not going to watch it. He said, why not? And she said, apropos of the shots from the, from that drone, she said, I'm not supposed to be able to see from up there. Hmm. There is no, big picture big picture is a convention see and it induces in you a sense of inadequacy if you're too local and too particular and too married to a particular place and time but if you are you'll find god a lot sooner there's an old adage that says uh, if you pray you might find god in 10 years but if you weep, you'll find him in two. So, you know, the particulars of life will have you weeping. The big picture, that'll leave you cold. Hmm. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and I want to give you an opportunity maybe to talk to people who would be really excited to come to one of your nights of grief and, and mystery. When, obviously, we can't really say when it's going to open up again, but how can people find, find out more about your show and, um, and, and potentially book tickets in the near future? Well, like every other uh, hopeful person, I have a website and mm -hmm. it's called orphan wisdom, just like it sounds all one word.com. And we try to be current there about this very thing. Now I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, making some observations about the times in place of 
announcing ticket prices and dates and you know postponements certainly we've had to postpone since april and uh, i don't know if we're going to be able to get out on the road in the fall we had a four continent 70 city tour that was supposed to start in april i haven't done one of those shows yet on the other hand and it's no replacement but um, as i mentioned we have a new record coming out whose name we don't know yet but it may we may lift it from the name of the tour that has yet to see its way forward it was called the rough gods tour and and i i coined that well before there's any announcement of this pestilence making you know rotting the countryside so the record's a double record as they used to say in the old days double lp or two record set and uh it's live shows from uh, the tour we did in 2019 mostly mm -hmm. in north america and about four or five four studio pieces that i um uh, composed when Gregory and I were down in Oaxaca in uh, January and February of this year. Again, before all of this came on, uh, but when you hear some of the pieces, some of the stories and so on, you would think I'm riffing on what's happened since, but it was all recorded before. Well, this is exactly what I said. You know, if you pay attention to the particulars, hmm. uh, the story starts to tell itself. And I suppose that's what we were doing. Mm. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm thrilled to hear it. Uh, and I'm thinking at this point now, it'll probably be next year when we get on the road, but when we get a chance to do it, um, I think everything that we've been lucky enough to live through now and everything we were spared from will make its appearance uh, in the show. And the amazing thing about having something called Nights of Grief and Mystery is it's not like it's a dated proposition, grief or mystery. You know, they're ongoing. And uh, we'll be faithful witnesses. And even if it's only the two of us and we have to leave the band behind for the time being, we'll do it. Hmm. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. I'm going to make sure that people get the links where they can find all of that stuff as well. Yeah. And um, hopefully I will be at one of your shows very, very soon. It'd be wonderful. It will be. I'm looking forward to it myself. Okay. So there you have it. My interview with Stephen Jenkinson. Now I'm sure that you guys enjoyed that just as much as I did. And, uh, it was such a wonderful conversation. I really want to have him back in the future, um, and just keep on picking his brain because he's got such a wonderful mix of that, you know, ancient wisdom, that modern knowledge of our current context of our times and, um, you know, poetry, culture, all these wonderful things, uh, you know, and so just such a mind to pick at. So uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. And I'm going to talk to you guys next time. You can find the links in the show notes for where you can get all of his stuff online, his books, his show dates, everything. Uh, but anyway, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J. E. Drew. See you next time.